Okay, hello friends, and welcome to a new three-part series, three-part Mikra series. Uh, leading uh, us is uh, Rabbi Yamin Levi, and together we will embark on a careful analysis of Sefer Yeshua according to the Peshat approach. And about our speaker, Rabbi Yamin Levi is the senior rabbi at the Iranian Jewish Center, Beth Hadassah Synagogue in Great Neck, New York. He's the founder and director of the Maimonides Heritage Center based in Israel and New York. He has authored and edited several books as well as published extensively in English, Hebrew, and Katal. He published an award-winning novel called Sababa that deals with the Israeli-Arab conflict. Rabbi Amin Levy has an active YouTube channel and corresponds via email with a learning community around the world. Uh, Rabbi Levy has been with us in the past, and I believe his shoot from last year is one of uh, the most popular uh, on YouTube. So I highly recommend uh, to check that out. Um, and uh, thank you so much, everyone, for being with us uh, live and for being with us, uh, for checking us out afterwards. And thank you so much, Raham, for uh, for your time. The floor is yours. Thank you. Wow, what a nice introduction. I appreciate that. Uh, welcome to our class. It's a three-part series on Sefer Yehoshua, and we're going to get right to work. So the text I like to use is Mossad Haraf Kook on the book of Yehoshua, and the reason why is because uh, the author of this one in the series, Yehuda Kiel, was one of the great uh, Bible scholars, taught at Hebrew University for many years, and um, really a brilliant, brilliant Torah scholar. The text that is used here in the Mosad Araf Kuk is the Aram Soba text, which um, is generally the text I would recommend for the use of any Tanakh. That's the same text that the, uh, this is the Feldheim Koren Tanakh, which I use. Before this, I used to use the Breuer Tanakh, uh, which uh, uses also the Arab Soba uh, text. What Yehuda Kiel does is he will compare the Aram Soba text to the Leningrad texts um, and uh, usually determine what he hopes, what he believes is the most accurate text. So that's what we're going to be working with. So if you do not have the Mosad Araf Kuk, any uh, Tanakh text for our purposes will suffice. As was just said, the approach we are going to take is a rabbinic approach. The biblical text uh, is ideally understood and I invite you to unmute yourselves because I'm going to ask you a question. What does Peshuto Shel Mikra mean? It's a shot. It's literal meaning. Literal meaning of the text. Is there such a thing as a literal translation or literal meaning of a text? No. Yes, maybe, maybe not. Uh, uh, does anybody else want to try? What does pshuto shel mikra mean? Our goal is pshuto shel mikra. What does that mean? What's our goal in interpreting and understanding our text? How it was commonly understood at the time. Good. Who said that? Sina. Me. Oh, Sina. Excellent. Okay. So Sina touched upon something very, very important. The idea that uh, we want to arrive at an understanding of the text that was understood or how the text was understood originally by the first readers of the biblical text. And why is that important? 
because language is funny. That's the real truth. And there are all kinds of nuances in language that, uh, you know, if, if we take, if we, if we just go with the simple literal approach, uh, we get misguided. For example, what the ayin tachat ayin, an eye for an eye, that's what it means literally. But we know that that's not what the biblical text intended, correct? It intended yeah. some sort of financial compensation that will make the damages caused equal to the uh, punishment. And so uh, what Sina said is um, the direction we're going to take. This also um, explains uh, uh, how we understand uh, certain uh, expressions in terms in the Mikra. For example, the Torah says, by Chabed Hashem et Leif Paro. And God made Pharaoh's heart heavy. And that's uh, generally understood as God limiting Pharaoh's free will uh, or God um, uh, withholding uh, possibilities, uh, uh, possible responses from Pharaoh. Um, that, of course, raises many philosophical questions. How could God limit uh, a human being's uh, free will? Shutoshel Mikra is something else. By Chabed Hashem at Leif Paro is a double entendre in terms of uh, what this expression means. If you study or if you look into uh, ancient Egyptian uh, culture and belief, uh, when a pharaoh would die, the uh, priests would take his heart and weigh it. And if pharaoh's heart weighed anything more than a feather, he was considered an evil pharaoh. So when the Torah says, Hashem et leif paro, and God made pharaoh's heart heavy, the original readers understood this as meaning that pharaoh was evil. And whatever God's intervention was, it certainly, uh, uh, it, it, the, the, the expression was a uh, moral, um, uh, uh, a moral comment or commentary on Pharaoh himself. So that's going to be our goal. Our goal yeah. is to... Yes. Please. So what do you think of Robert Alter's translation? Whose? Robert Alter. Yeah, the, all translations are an interpretation. All of them. But if you read Robert Alter's introduction to his translation, yeah. he's going to tell you uh, much of what I'm saying right now. That yeah. we're going to try to get to uh, reading the text as closely as possible to the way it was originally understood. So how do we get to that point? What's the earliest commentary on the Ikra? Anybody? Who's the earliest commentary on the, on the book of Yoshua? We have the book of Yoshua. What's the earliest commentary on the book of Yoshua? Everybody. Rashi. Rashi. What? Rashi. Rashi. The book itself. Rashi was 12th century. There must be something earlier than that. Targum. Targum was very early indeed. There's got to be something earlier than that. The book Uh, itself. Chachamim Chachamim was indeed early. Targum is earlier than the Chachamim. Targum might be Mishneik. Um, but the answer is that the earliest commentary, if our goal is to understand the Mikra, 
in accordance to the way it was originally understood by the first readers, then our earliest commentary is going to be the Tanakh itself. We're going to make use of the Tanakh as a commentary to the book of Yehoshua. That's what we're going to do. <coughs> so how are we going to do that? We're going to use, for example, a concordance. If you look behind me, I have my concordance there. What does a concordance do? A concordance will compare terms and expressions and root words, how it's used throughout the Tanakh. And we'll, be, and we'll generate, and we will generate meaning of that term as it is understood within the Tanakh context. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. So, um, what's the difference? One more, uh, one more, two more introductory questions. What is the difference between the study of Mikra and the study of Parshanuta Mikra? Anybody? That one, I didn't. I'm sorry, someone's ringing my doorbell. Give me one second. I'm so sorry about that. What's the difference between the study of Mikra? And Parshanuta Mikra. Because Mikra is the playing reading and Parshanuta's interpret is commentary. Correct. So we're gonna we're gonna study the Mikra. Now we might uh, make use of the commentaries such as Rashi, Radak, uh, Ibn Ezra, um, uh, uh, and others, Ramban and Nachmanides, but that's not gonna be our focus because if we were interested in what the commentaries say, that would be the study of Parshanut HaMikra. And we would be studying what each commentary uh, did, their methodology, and find patterns in their methodology uh, for, through the book of Yehoshua, if that, was our, if that was the text we were working with. That's not what we're going to be doing. Our focus is going to be solely the Mikra. And when a Parshan says something that is relevant to our study, we will, uh, we may, we may not introduce them to our work. Okay, let's begin with um, dating the book of Yehoshua. That's very important. It's always an important exercise to uh, date the material we're working with. Now, when I say dating it, I want to be very clear. Um, the book of Yehoshua is not necessarily a history book. You understand that, correct? It's a book of Tanakh. And the narratives that appear in our Tanakh, while they may be historically significant and um, speak to the history of the Jewish people, it's not necessarily history. For us, the book of Tanakh is primarily a book of theology. Of our relationship with God, God's relationship with the Jewish people, 
what God expects of us, what the Torah demands of us, etc. But it's not necessarily history. Having said that, it's important that we have a general sense of where we're placing this on a historical spectrum. So, how do we go about dating Kibush Eretz Israel, the first uh, uh, conquest of the land of Israel, the death of Moshe Rabbeinu, and the transition of power from Moshe Rabbeinu to Yehoshua? How would we go about doing this? Any suggestions? So I would suggest if you take a calculator, which I have right over here, my cell phone, and we are in what year are we now? 2022, correct? So if you take 57, 83, less 2022, so the world was created according to Jewish tradition in the year 3761. BCE. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you understand that? Just give me a nod if you understand that, because it's very important that we kind of be on the same page here. Now, what year was Avraham Avinu born? According to Seder Olam. Does anybody know? It's easy to remember. 1942? 1948. 1948. It's easy to remember because that's the year of the establishment of the state of Israel. So we're going to subtract 1,948 years. And that's going to give us. So Abraham Avinu lived at around 1800 BCE. How old was Abraham when Yitzhak was born? 100, right? So we're going to subtract 100. And how old was Yitzchak when Yaakov was born? 60. Less 60. That puts us at 1653. How old was Yaakov Avinu when he died? Anybody? 147, right? Did I do this right? Let's see that I... Oh, I lost it. 1650 less 147 equals 1503. How many years did the Jewish people spend in Mitzrayim? This you know. Well, 400 is from the time of Abraham Avinu. Right? 430 years from the time of Abraham Avinu. But how many times? 210 years, correct? Less 210 years. So, Yitziat Mitzrayim is around... 1300 BCE. And then we subtract, let's say, 40 years in the desert. And so we're at about 1250 BCE. Now, in the academic world, they date uh, this period of Yehoshua, the initial conquest of the land of Israel, right around there, around 300 1300, I'm sorry, 1300, some as early as 1400 BCE, some as a late as 1280 BCE. So being at 12, being at 1300 BCE puts us right there. And so one could argue that Seder Olam Zuta 
which is what I based my calculations on, um, while it gets more complicated later on, in these initial calculations, we're right there with the academic world. Now, if you dig into the archaeology a little bit, there's a professor, uh, his name is uh, Zartal. Um, let's see if I can find uh, Adam Zartal. In the uh, early 90s, he claims to have made a discovery of um, uh, uh, artifacts in Mount Ebal, Mount Ebal, which is one of the first places Yehoshua came to, that suggest uh, the people of Israel, after leaving Egypt, ended up over there towards the entrance of the land of Israel, Mount Ebal, Ahar Ebal, um, and again, dates it right around this period of time. So I'm comfortable as a scholar and with integrity to say we're talking about a period about 1300 before the Common Era. Uh, another way to measure this, calculate this is, uh, at the beginning of the book of Shmuel, we are told that uh, Shlomo HaMelech dedicated the Beit HaMikdash 480 years since the initial conquest of the land of Israel. So what would that be? Let's subtract 480. And so it dates Shlomo HaMelech a little bit early. Because Shlomo HaMelech was around 850 before the common era. But we're right in that neighborhood. So are you all with me so far? Is this too technical? I hope not. Okay. Um, we're going to begin with Book of Yehoshua. The Book of Yehoshua, ladies and gentlemen, is the first of the Nevi'im. And um, the Nevi'im include Sefer Yehoshua, Sefer Shoftim, Shemuel Aleph, Shemuel Bet, Melachim Aleph, and Melachim Bet. It begins, the period begins with the conquest of the land of Israel under the leadership of Yehoshua, and Melachim Bet ends with the uh, Babylonian destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash and the uh, expulsion of big parts of Israel and uh, Yehuda to Babel. Uh, that would be around 586 before the Common Era. And so um, uh, it's a period of about a thousand years, 900 years that takes place uh, between the book of Yehoshua on one bookend and the end of Sefer Melachim at the other book end. Um, before we begin the text, What's happening here uh, within the Jewish people? What's taking place? The Jews left Egypt 40 years ago. They spent 40 years in the desert under the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu. And so what's happening now? Anybody? Entering the land. Say it again. Entering yes. the land. You have to enter the land. I would argue that that's the easy part. <clears throat> What's the difficult part here? What, what's going on here? They've lost their leader. Yes. 
Excellent. So number one, they lost their very beloved leader, Moshe Rabbeinu. Correct? Moshe Rabbeinu, um, uh, for whatever purposes uh, the divine plan had, Moshe was raised among Egyptians, and he successfully brought down the Egyptian empire and was able to extract a big portion of the Jews that were living in Egypt to follow him out. And they experienced a great theophany at Mount Sinai, spent 40 years in the desert, and now their leader is dead. So what happens next? What, what is the big hurdle next? Conquering. What? Conquering. Well, conquering is going to be the easy part. No, they have to, they have to acknowledge Yeshua as their leader. The succession of leadership is difficult. And this is a universal problem. This is a universal problem. Transition of power. And leadership is always dramatic. Not in the and UK. Say, say it again. Not it's, in the UK. Not in the UK. Okay, it's it's dramatic everywhere. It's dramatic. Yeah. We are very blessed in the United States, United Kingdom, and in Canada, and some countries where the transition of power is not done militarily. But up until a hundred years ago, that's usually the way it took place. You know what I'm saying? And so we might expect some sort of tension. And so let's be very alert and very astute to how we read the text and see if there are any allusions in the text itself to this kind of a tension that may be taking place, this transition of power this change of hands, who's going to lead the people uh, of Israel. And so the book is called Yehoshua, according to Masechet Babi Batra, Dafiudalit 14a or b, I don't remember at the bottom of the page, the Chachamim say that Yehoshua authored his own book. This is not the general consensus of all the, Chacha, of, of all the medievalists. A Barbanel, for example, uh, suggests that it wasn't Yehoshua. It was Shemuel Hanavi who wrote the book. And why? He says, because there are many places in the book of Yehoshua which says, Ad hayom hazeh. This place is called so-and-so until today. And so why would Yehoshua be saying until today if he was writing the events himself? A Barbanel makes a good point. And um, the truth of the matter is uh, uh, what a Barbanel does provide for us who are uh, uh, religious thinkers and want to approach this text from a theologically, religiously sound perspective is that the Gemara does tell us Yehoshua. Uh, the book is named after Yehoshua and the events in the book take place uh, uh, during Yoshua's period of time, but there might have been multiple authors uh, or editors of this book, and that's totally fine. That's totally fine. It could have been written or compiled or put together 
after Yehoshua died during the period of Shemuel Hanavi and maybe even later. It really does not impact our reverence for the biblical text, uh, even in the slightest. Um, his name, Yehoshua, what's his full name? Does anybody know? Bin Nun. Bin Nun. Has anybody thought, considered this formulation, Bin Nun as opposed to Ben Nun? Why not Ben Nun? Uh, 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 you know, Nachshon uh, uh, Ben Aminadav. It's usually Ben with a Sigol. Why is it Bin with a uh, Shirik here? Does anybody? Well, the truth of the matter is, I'm, I'm asking you a, a difficult question, a question that we, we probably don't have a good answer to. Radak wants to suggest that this is accurate grammatically, but it's not convincing. We have one other place in Mikra, in the book of Michle. In the chapter 30 of Mishle, the Pasuk says, Divrei Agur bin Yake. The words of Agur bin Yake. And uh, that's the only two people in the Tanakh that are referred to with a bin as opposed to ben. Um, you have in. Uh, what? Yonah. Yonah, but that's not a person, correct? That is Lila. Bin Lila, correct? So that's a variation on the word on Bain. Bain Lila. Am I I might be mistaken, but I think that's what I remember. It's not, it's I'm 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 speaking to the question of a son of Ben. We also have in the book of Devarim. Uh, what do we have in Devarim? We have uh, uh Vehaya bin uh, uh bin Hakot Harasha, correct? And he shall uh, bin hakot harasha. Uh, again, that's not making reference to the son of a person. And so I would I would argue that it's very possible that the tribe of Ephraim, or there were certain families that preserved the tradition that they called themselves bin as opposed to ben. Uh, but more than that, to say. Uh, uh, or to find some sort of grammatical proof, I think is difficult. If anybody has a suggestion to that, I certainly welcome it. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that uh, that there really, really is. Um, who was Yehoshua in the Mikra up until now? And this, I think, is an important um, uh, piece in terms of understanding and moving forward in the book of Yehoshua. When is the first time Yehoshua appears in Mikra? Anybody? He was one of the spies. That's correct. That's later on. That's in the book of Bemidbar. But well, Yehoshua appears, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Amalek. with Amalek. Correct. Early on in the book of Shemot, chapter 17. And over there, in the book of Shemot, let me just quickly look, he's referred to as Yehoshua. Correct? No father's name, just Yehoshua. I thought he had a hay added. That's later on. That's hold, that's later on. Oh. Oh, oh, in, in, in the book of Shemot, uh, let me just see quickly here. It says, 
ויאמר משה אל יהושע, בחר לנו אנשים. So over there he's referred to as Yehoshua. Yehoshua is selected by Moshe Rabbeinu to lead the Jewish people to war. Um, this was a new experience for the Jewish people. It certainly was a new experience for Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu uh, was a great prophet a great legislator, a great leader, a great negotiator. But he wasn't the man who was going to lead them to war. It was Yehoshua. The Jewish people faced war. And the Pasuk says, Moshe asked Yehoshua, go select an army and take us to war. The next time Yehoshua is mentioned, it's also in the book of Shemot. Anybody? You might remember uh, yes, correct at Hegel. And over here, let's find it. Um, Moshe Rabbeinu is coming down from the mountain with the Luchot Ha'edut, Pasuk Yod Zayin, Vaishma Yehoshua et kol ha'am bereo. Yehoshua hears the sound of the people bereo, from the Shorish Ra, not in its ideal state. Vayomer el Yehoshua, Vayomer el Moshe, kol milchama b'machanem. Yehoshua hears a sound, and how does he interpret it? Kol milchama. This is very, very important. The sound of war. The sound of war. Yehoshua is being depicted for us as the warrior in this uh, duo between Moshe and Yehoshua. And Moshe, of course, you know, responds, Vayomer, and kol anot gevura, vein kol anot chalusha, kol anot anochi shomea. What are the most beautiful verses in the entire Chumash with the play with word of the ayin, nun, vav, taf, uh, anot, which uh, it means uh, Sound and agony. And Moshe Rabbeinu, this is not the sound of uh, a victory or the sound of, uh, of, of we're losing, but rather it's the sound of some sort of suffering, uh, a note that uh, he's hearing. So Yehoshua, again, introduced here alongside Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai. And Yehoshua hears the sound of war. Let me ask you a question. We're going to get to this in uh, the book of Yehoshua. When Yehoshua has a vision, his first prophetic vision in the book of Yehoshua, what does he see? Does anybody remember? It's, a malach. Yes, a malach. And how is the malach dressed? With a drawn sword. Correct. The malach is dressed in a military gear. The reason why that's very important is because one of the elements required of the prophet is 
the imaginative element. The prophet has to be morally perfect, has to be intellectually and spiritually perfect, and he also has to have a very disciplined, imaginative uh, element. And so it's no surprise that Yehoshua sees an angel dressed as a warrior because Yehoshua is the warrior par excellence. You know what I'm saying? He's the great warrior of the Jewish people of that period. He's the general and warrior of the people. And this is important because it now is going to explain to us the next appearances of Yehoshua in the book of uh, Bemidbar. So the first is in the book of Bemidbar um, with the incident of Eldad Umeidad mitnabeim betoch hamachane. And uh, what happens over there? Eldad Umeidad remained prophesizing in the camp. And Yehoshua wanting to protect Moshe Rabbeinu's honor, uh, says to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says as follows. <coughs> uh, 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 I'm, I'm not finding it so quickly. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu, he, he, he goes out to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, Eldad, you made that, I'm looking in the wrong book. That's why. Uh, we're in book of Bemidbar, not Vaikra. And so let's see here if I can find it very quickly. Yehoshua says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayarot Hanar, Vayaged Moshe Vayomar, the Naar, the student or the disciple, uh, ran to Moshe Rabbeinu and said to him, Eldad Umeidad mitnabeim bamachane. Here we're introduced to Yeshua a little bit differently. Yehoshua Binun, here he's referred to as Binun, Misharet Moshe, the word Misharet was his uh, assistant, his helper, Mibechura uh, 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 from his youth. Adoni Moshe Kelaim. Moshe Rabbeinu, quiet them, silence them. And here Moshe Rabbeinu responds beautifully and in his most humble way. You're jealous on my behalf. Lest all the people of Israel should be prophets. Moshe Rabbeinu did not see his position as a, pro- as a prophet as, as, a, as a position of power. The ideal is that everyone should be a prophet. But here Yoshua is introduced as Misharet Moshe, and he is referred to as Yehoshua bin Nun. Then we have the episode in chapter 13 of the Miraglim. Someone mentioned that earlier. And interestingly enough, here, the Pasuk says, Yehoshua was chosen. Limate Ephraim, Hoshea Binun. His name is not Yehoshua here. 
His name is Hoshea Binun. And you go down a few more verses. Over there in that incident, Moshe Rabbeinu changes the name of Hoshea Binun to Yehoshua. What's the big question here? What's the elephant in the room? He's been called Yehoshua beforehand. Correct. Correct. He's been called Yehoshua beforehand. Just the, pre- the previous chapter, he was called Yehoshua. And so the Chachamim say that uh, Chazal say the following. They say that, and I think it's in the Rashi over here in these Pesukim in chapter 13, that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu changed his name as an act of prayer and hope that Yehoshua should have the resilience to withstand the temptation to follow the majority of the Miraglim in their uh, unfortunate report of the land of Israel. We can take this idea and apply it to uh, the chronology here. And we could say that Moshe, this idea, this notion of changing the name as an act of prayer from Hosea to Yehoshua, you will be the redeemer or be redeemed. We can argue that really Moshe Rabbeinu changed his name the first time Yehoshua was asked to put his life at risk when he was going to defend the Jewish people against Amalek. But it was mentioned over here, maybe because of the uh, less militaristic danger and more of the religious theological danger. It's just a possible theory. But the general consensus is that the name change took place much earlier. And we have a principle, Ein Mukdam Umeuchar Batorah. There is no uh, chronology or chronological order in the Torah. The final, uh, the final sp- uh, references to Yehoshua are significant. And one is on, uh, also in the book of Bemidbar, um, chapter 27. Um, in Parshat Pinchas. Uh, earlier on in the book of Bemidbar, the Jewish people should have already been on their way into the land of Israel, but they sinned, they rebelled, they wanted food, uh, and uh, the whole plan of Vahib bin Soharon, Vimar Moshe, falls apart. Moshe Rabbeinu turns to God in chapter 27 of the book of Bemidbar and says, Vayomer Moshe l'ashem lemor, ifkod Adonai Elohe ruchot lechol basar ish al ha'eda. God should select a leader, a man, to lead this congregation. Asher yitzay lifnehem, a man who will go among them and, 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 and move among them. 
ואשר יוציאם ואשר יביאם, and will lead them in and out, ולא תהיה עדת השם קצון אשר אין להם רואה. Now, for me, this becomes a difficult text. Why? Because up until this point, Yehoshua has proven himself. Yehoshua was the next in line. Misharet Moshe. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu now asking for a, a leader? As opposed to Moshe Rabbeinu saying, listen, I'm ready to retire. Let's uh, give Yehoshua Semicha once and for all. That's not what he says. What kind of leader is Moshe Rabbeinu looking for here? Anybody? In that pasuk? A spiritual leader as opposed to the military leader which Joshua has been up till now? Brilliant. That's correct. Moshe, the Lashon Moshe Rabbeinu uses is, Asher asher And this expression occurs only one other time in Tanakh. It occurs, does anybody know? I mean, I don't expect you to know, but uh, it occurs... Uh, King David? Yes, who said that? That's correct. Very, very good. It occurs with uh, David HaMelech in um, Perik Yudchet. David HaMelech is speaking to uh, Everybody loves, embrace David, fell in love with David. Why? He comes and he goes amongst the people. He's the people's man. As opposed to Yehoshua, who as is that Mr. Simon? I'm reading your uh, name. Uh, Simon. Yeah, Mr. Simon noted, this is an expression of the spiritual leader, the beloved rabbi, the beloved prophet, the teacher. And that was not Yehoshua. Yehoshua was a warrior through and through. When he hears noise, he hears war. When he has a prophetic vision, he sees a military vision. And God responds to Moshe Rabbeinu by saying, Take Yehoshua. He has the Spirit of God. You have to make a public display of giving him semicha, putting your hands upon him. Before the Kohanim and before the people, there should be no question as to who is the next leader here. And you will command him before all of them. Sivita here 
might mean command, but also mean appoint him. I think that's more accurate. Appoint him in front of all of them. Moshe Rabbeinu had a different vision for a leader. But God intervenes. Why? Because what's the kind of a leader that the people will need after Moshe Rabbeinu dies? They will need, as you all assume, is a military leader. They have to conquer the land of Israel. Okay, let's continue. The book of Devarim. We have two more references to Moshe Rabbeinu in the book of Devarim. Um, one re- reference to Moshe Rabbeinu and Yehoshua teaching the Torah to the people. Let's look at that very quickly. Um, wrong book here. Let's look at that very quickly because it's significant. Uh, let's see, 32. Listen to this. Moshe Rabbeinu comes and he's putting forth the, 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 this shira, the, the shira which we assume is the Torah before the people. Who? The Hoshea Binun. Moshe and Hoshea Binun. Why he's called Hoshea here, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, if any one of you do... Um, uh, uh, and you want to share it, you're welcome to. And then the final um, passage uh, of Yehoshua is, of course, when Moshe Rabbeinu dies, uh, the Torah tells us, Vayal Moshe Me'avot Mo'av. And we have the um, final a- passage. Say that again. It's on verse 9 in chapter Lamedalas. Yes. Thank you. The Yoshua binun male ruach chokma ki samach Moshe et yadav alav. So we, we, we revisit this idea of Yoshua being the selected leader. Why? Because Moshe Rabbeinu publicly samach yadav alav. Chazal the Chachamim add something very important over here and something that we should not take lightly in the least according to Chazal uh, they ask after Moshe Rabbeinu dies at the end of Devarim so who completed the Torah the last eight verses after Moshe Rabbeinu dies um uh etc. And so Chazal say in Masechet Baba Batra that the last Pesukim were written by uh, Yoshua Binun. And uh, I understand that to mean that Yehoshua here is invested by Chazal with great authority. The, the, the go-to answer is that Moshe wrote it b'nevuah, correct? That Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the last pesukim in a prophetic state. The courageous answer, and the answer that uh, imputes 
great prophetic powers and leadership powers onto Yoshua is that Yoshua himself wrote those last Pesukim. Okay, I think in terms of introduction, I'd like us to begin chapter one of the book of Yoshua. And so uh, what I usually like to do when I am faced with a chapter is I like to divide it up into portions, to break it up. And the first chapter has 18 Pesukim. And uh, what's nice about this first chapter is that it naturally divides itself. Pesukim 1 through the end of 9, Pasuk Yod to the end of Yod Aleph, and then Pasuk Yod Bet to the end of the chapter. Now we're fortunate that it divides up this way with in the biblical way, uh, but you all know that the chapters organizations in Tanakh are not Jewish, correct? Am I saying something that someone does not? Yeah, that the chapters were established by uh, the church uh, sometime in the late Middle Ages. Uh, I don't know exactly the time, but sometime in the late Middle Ages. Um, but the Tanakh is organized uh, uh, internally. And when it fits nicely like this, it, it's wonderful. So I'm going to read for you the Pesukim. And if you can just be attentive to repeated words, if you can be attentive to alliterations and um, uh you know, subtle messages that are being uh, introduced here that might speak to some of the uh, points we raised in our introduction, I think that would be very, very good. Uh, you should all know that uh, in my community, I'm born in Morocco, and uh, in Morocco, this is the first haftarah, a, when you learn how to read Hebrew, you recite publicly. So at age six, I read, you want me to chant it for you? I have a terrible voice. Chant. <laughs> ועד הים הגדול מבוא השמש, יהיה גבולכם. לא יתייצב איש לפניך, כל ימי חייך. כאשר הייתי עם משה, אהיה עמך, לא ארפך ולא אזבקה. חזק ואמץ, כי אתה תנחיל את העם הזה אל הארץ. אשר נשבעתי לאבותם, לתת להם רק. חזק ואמץ מאוד לשמור לעשות ככל התורה אשר ציווך משה עבדי אל תסור ממנו ימין ושמאל 
למען תשכיל בכל אשר תלך, לא ימוש ספר התורה הזה מפיך, והגית בו יומם ולילה, למען תשמור לעשות ככל הכתוב בו, כי אז תצליח את דרכיך ואז תשכיל, הלא ציוויתיך חזק ואמץ, אל תרוץ ואל תחת, כי אם אחד ה' אלוהיך בכל אשר תלך. So when do we read this? Anybody know? When is it recited? Which haftarah is this? That's correct. It's uh, the maftir of Simchat Torah. And so we're very liberal on Simchat Torah, but amongst Sfaradim, a pre-bar mitzvah could read a maftir and could read a haftarah for Akal at any time during the year. But this is the first uh, haftarah that, uh, at least in the Moroccan community, uh, we uh, allow a young boy to recite publicly. So what words stand out over here? What combination of words? Anybody? Thank you. Chazak ve'ematz. That's correct. Chazak ve'ematz appears in the first nine pesukim three times. Chazak ve'ematz means be strong and courageous or brave and it might be speaking to this tension we, 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 we are aware of already in terms of the transition of power, transition of leadership. If we take our concordance and we look up the expression chazak ve'emat, it appears 11 times in Tanakh. Six of those times, they're associated with Yehoshua Binun. And it links us to the book of Devarim. Because twice in the book of Devarim, we are, uh, the expression Chazak Ve'ematz appears. Let me see if I can find it for you. Um... Let's see if I can find it for you. Uh, 317. Let's see here. Notice the synergy. The parallel in terms of language between what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling Yehoshua here at the end of Devarim and the Lashon used in this chapter. Um, Moshe Rabbeinu says to Yehoshua, V'adonai hu ha'olech lefanecha hu yeimach and here God says to Yehoshua, Why is this linkage important to us? 
It links the book of Devarim to the book of Yehoshua intimately. Yeah. It's this powerful link that is not just um, from a mechanical point of view, from a literary point of view, but theologically, it's this powerful linkage. God will not abandon Yehoshua as Moshe Rabbeinu promised, and God reiterates that very promise to Yehoshua himself. Um, what other word is uh, mentioned here um, in this first section? The name Moshe Rabbeinu. I mean, I didn't count it, but it's a lot of times. Anybody want to do a quick count? How many times? Moshe Avdi met Moshe Eved Hashem, Misharet Moshe Lemor, Moshe Avdi, Dibarti El Moshe, Shvanecha Koyemichayecha, Im Moshe Yeimach, Chazak Bemat, Asheti Vecha Moshe Avdi, at least, I mean, eight, nine times. Nine. How many? Nine, nine times in these nine pesukim, the word, the term Moshe Rabbeinu. And so we have this literary um, uh, message of this transition, which is very, very important in terms of understanding uh, these pesukim. Okay, section number two. I'm not going to chant it, but um, we're going to read it. Vaitzav Yoshua Shotreha Amlimor. Yoshua here prepares the uh, leaders uh, uh, of the of the nation. Give me one moment here. My alarm is going off. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Okay, so um, and and Yoshua tells them, prepare yourselves because in three days we're crossing over the Jordan. What this idea of three days? Where else do we know the this 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 this, this three day waiting period? Correct. The preparation for the great theophany, right? You know what happens at Harsinai. Initially, God says to the Jewish people, I'll speak to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. The people come back and say to Moshe Rabbeinu, no, we want God to speak to us directly. God says, no problem. Three days. Where else do we have the three days? The Akedah. Yes, correct. Akedat Yitzchak. We have this three-day waiting period at this unimaginable moment in my forthcoming book called The Mysticism of Andalusia I speak of uh, I, 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 I have two chapters on what I call Dumia Dumia is this silence that uh that is, 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 is a contained silence. Instead of screaming, we're asked 
to remain silent. Vaidom Aharon. Aharon remained silent as his children lie dead before him. Abraham Avinu, three days, has to remain silent as he prepares for the unimaginable. And so I'm trying to kind of work with those ideas here, this three-day preparation period. The Jewish people knew war in the desert. They did. War was not unfamiliar to them. But what would be new to them would be this uh, whole concept of establishing, creating a nation, creating a new people, creating a, uh, developing a land, government, governance, self-governance. And so it involved this intense three-day preparation, which does invoke Mamad Har Sinai and even the Akedat Yitzchak. Uh, next section. And uh, do I still have you for a little bit longer? Yes? Ten more minutes? Yes, for sure. Yes? Okay, because I do want to, um, you know, I, I'm not going to read the entire next section, but the next section is this dialogue between uh, Yehoshua and the tribe of Reuven, God, and Chatsi Shevet Menashe. And what transpires here is something fascinating, something that we would expect to take place. Moshe Rabbeinu negotiated a deal with these three tribes. You remember? Moshe Rabbeinu negotiated a deal with them that they could have the Transjordan as long as they will fight the battles of the conquest of the land of Israel with the people of Israel, with the remaining tribes. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu is dead. And so, and maybe the leaders who negotiated this deal with Moshe Rabbeinu have also died. And Yoshua comes to the, uh, these tribes and he wants to make sure that the deal is standing. Now, what is um, what do these three tribes have in common? Reuven, God, and Chatsi Shevet Menashe. Does anybody know? They're the other side. Well, yes, we know that that they're, they're they made negotiated this deal to be on the Transjordan. But what do they have in common? Same mother. The same mother. No, they don't have the same mother at all. Uh, what they they don't have the same mother, and, and and where I'm going with this speaks very much to why this conversation is happening in the first chapter of the book of Yehoshua and critical to the transition of power here. The, these three tribes are all firstborn to their mother. And and they're the rejected firstborn. Reuven was usurped by Yehuda. God was usurped, and Menashe was usurped. 
And so when they approach Moshe Rabbeinu and say, we want to remain in the Transjordan, in the Eastern Front, Kedem, Moshe Rabbeinu is jarred by that. Read that text. We're not going to go to the text in Bamidbar. But Moshe Rabbeinu has good reason to be jarred. Why? Because this is the seeds. These are the seeds of a rebellion. These are legitimate heirs to leadership. And if they invoke their hereditary um, uh, birthright, this can destroy the entire project of creating a nation of Israel. And so the very same challenge Moshe Rabbeinu faced with Reuven, Gad, and Chatzi Shevet Menashe, Yehoshua faces right here. And beautifully and thankfully, they respond to Yehoshua by saying, Vaya'anu et Yehoshua lemor, kol asher tivitanu na'aseh. They say to Yehoshua, all that you command us, we will do. You are our general. Where you tell us to go, we will go. Just as we listen to Moshe, we will listen to you. The only condition is that you be loyal to God and God is loyal to you. And we will be the guardians of any rebellion. Anyone who rebels against you, What a beautiful way of concluding this first chapter, this chapter which represents so much potential disaster. And it just comes together so so beautifully. So I want to um, end with a teaser. A teaser for uh, our next class and for our next two classes. Our next class, we're going to talk about the, um, uh, the story of Rachav and the spies who enter the city of Yericho. And I'm going to tell you this. This story has been so misunderstood and so misrepresented, it's tragic. You want to understand the book of Devarim, we have to understand the story of Rachav. As plainly as that. The story of Rachav is a most beautiful interpretation and insight into Moshe Rabbeinu's final legacy, the book of Devarim. That's number one. And number two, I want to read you a halacha in Harambam, because anybody who knows me knows that I, I can't give a shiur without mentioning Harambam at least twice. I mentioned them earlier regarding Nevoah. I'm going to mention them again uh, now. Harambam writes in Hilchot Terumot, I read out of my Mosada Rav Kook, very carefully uh, 
you very much used and edited book. Harambam writes as follows. Kol shehekviku olei mitzrayim nitkadesh kedusharishona. The land that was conquered by Yehoshua Binun, Olei Mitzrayim, was sanctified with Kedusha Rishona. Kevan Shegalu, when they were exiled, Batla Kedushatan, the sanctity of the land was Batla Betela. Shekedusha Rishona, Lefisha Haita Mitneha Kibush Bilvad. The first, the land during Yoshua Binun's conquest had limited sanctity. Why? Because Mipnei Hakibush. Because it was conquered. And it has only Kedusha Shata and not Kedusha Le'atid Lavo. Hopefully, by the end of our series, I'd like you to remind me of this halacha, and we're going to make sense of what Harambam means here. That Yehoshua Binun, a prophet, his kedusha was only temporary, and Ezra Sofer and uh, Shivat Zion, the second Shivat Zion, was, 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 had, had longer-lasting kedusha, is a radical comment which we're going to have to figure out and sort out. I hope I didn't waste anybody's time. I hope you enjoyed our study together. I certainly uh, uh, feel that uh, uh, I was able to gel some ideas today uh, in ways that I haven't in the past. I thank you for that. And I hope you'll join us for our second session uh, next round. Um, uh, Thank you. Uh, Mr. Simone, if you can introduce yourself to me, please. Uh, yeah, my name's Simon Montague. I'm a member of the Chavara for the last couple of years. Originally from London, now living in Jerusalem. Nice, good. And 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 you're an academic uh, by profession? Uh, no, I'm sort okay. of on the fringes of academia. I'm a translator. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. 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 Good. Because I see you have a you have a, 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 a handle on the text, which is wonderful. Good. Thank you all. I appreciate it. And. Um, Good. We'll be in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much Thank for coming. And uh, stay tuned. I think we're going to be on the 12th and the 15th. So uh, we'll see you then.